This morning, uh, the Bible reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to verse 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or are absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Amen. Come on, everyone, please take a seat. And uh, let me add uh, my welcome to, to Russell's. Um, very good to, to see you all this morning. My name's Johnny, if we haven't met before. I'm the, the pastor and part of the leadership uh, team here. Uh, we're just going to spend the next few minutes thinking about the passage that, that Russell's just read for us. Uh, a shorter passage this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 uh, to 30. Uh, let me encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, whether in a physical copy um, or um, on a device, please do have that open in front of you as we think about it over the next few minutes. Before we do that, though, let me ask for God's help. Let's pray. The psalmist writes, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Our God and Father, we ask that as we spend time over the next few minutes thinking of your sure and certain word together, You'd please give each of us ears to hear it and hearts to respond. We pray these things for our joy and for your glory and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, there are certain people in the world who have lived the sort of life that makes other people want to emulate them, want to copy them. That might be because they've been particularly successful in a given field, known for, for business acumen perhaps, or for being a particularly influential figure in the arts or in music. Perhaps people we know personally who, who've made an impression on us, whether a grandparent or a sibling whom we've looked up to and always wanted to be like. But I wonder, if I were to ask you this morning to, to make a list of people whose lives you might want to emulate... Where would you put the Apostle Paul on that list? Top five? Top ten, even? Would he make it onto the list at all? Paul devoted himself to, to telling people about Jesus, and that got him into an awful lot of bother. He often kicked up controversy when he went somewhere new, being chased out of quite a few places for offending people with his message. And even people who were close to him often seemed to abandon him. Towards the end of his life, he was arrested. And by the time he wrote this letter, Philippians, he was in a Roman prison cell. Now, if you were to plot out a plan for your life, I'm guessing that isn't exactly the trajectory most of us would want our lives to follow, is it? 
And yet in, in this letter to the church in Philippi, Paul says that's just what they should do. Notice that with me. If you have a, if you have a Bible open in front of you, turn on to chapter 3 of Philippians and we'll look at verse 17 together. Philippians chapter 3 verse 17. Brothers, says Paul, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What you've seen in me, says Paul, I want you to copy. And that isn't an isolated idea in the letter of Philippians, because you see in our Bible passages, both for last Sunday morning and for this morning, Paul is calling the Philippians to be every bit as committed to Jesus as he was. To copy Paul, even at great cost to themselves. Kevin helped us to see really helpfully last week about Paul's own life, what he told us about his own life in verses 12 to 26. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, said Paul. It doesn't get much more committed than that. And then as we tumble into this morning's passage, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm radically committed to Jesus, says Paul, and I want you to be too. Now, we aren't the Philippians. Paul isn't writing that command directly to us, but he is writing it for us, I think. If we are Christians, we are meant to follow this pattern too. And that means that this morning we're going to be prompted to consider whether we do share Paul's commitment, whether we look like Paul and we're going to follow his lead. That's uh, where we're heading this morning. Let's uh, think about that under a first heading. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, if I were to describe someone to you as being a typical Scot, I wonder what kind of character that would bring to your mind. That might be dangerous territory, I guess. Perhaps that they have a good sense of humor or that they're quite friendly. Scottish people are known for being good-humored and warm people, I think. Maybe that they're quite proud to be Scottish. Again, that's quite a common feature among Scottish people. Or perhaps the kind of person that comes to your mind is the kind of person who will deep-fry anything that sits still for long enough. Also a very Scottish trait. There are a number of expectations that can come with being citizen of a particular country, aren't there? Patterns of behavior that are in keeping with being a citizen of Scotland, for example. And that is the kind of idea that Paul brings to bear in Philippians chapter 1. Only he isn't speaking about citizens of Scotland, but citizens of heaven. Now, we might not immediately pick that up from our first reading of Philippians chapter 1. We read in verse 27 the command to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And that is an absolutely accurate way of translating what Paul wrote. But the word that Paul uses in verse 27 is actually quite unusual. It's got an unusual nuance. So much so that although I very rarely mention translation at all, I do think it's worth mentioning this time. Because the phrase Paul uses could just as accurately be translated, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that, that word manner of, or manner of life, it's got a distinctly citizenly feel about it. Some of your Bibles might actually pick that up. You might well have a footnote at the bottom that makes that point. And the reason I think it's worth picking up on it 
is that if you read further on in Philippians, Paul uses the same idea again. It's not an isolated idea. He says, chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Christians, says Paul, are expats. Heaven is where our home really is. And that idea, the idea of, of, of gospel citizenship or citizenship of heaven, has got a couple of, of really important implications for us, I think. Firstly, it conveys something of the real privilege it is to be a Christian. For, for quite a long time, being a citizen of the UK, whether for good or for ill, was a hugely privileged thing. It would open a lot of doors for people. Having a UK passport would mean you could gain access to countries all over the world and would have free access to lots of services here in the UK. And a similar thing could be said of the heavenly citizen, only on a much, much grander scale. It is a wonderfully privileged position. Being a citizen of heaven means that heaven is ultimately your home. You'll one day spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that just a wonderful thing? But as well as being a great privilege, the second implication of heavenly citizenship is that it brings with it a new identity. And Paul's first readers in Philippi wouldn't need much convincing of that, actually. They lived in a place called Philippi, But many of them were citizens of a much, much grander place, part of a big, big machine, the Roman Empire. Being a citizen of Rome, well, it was a badge of pride. It changed how people saw you, how you saw yourself. And again, that same idea is true with heavenly citizenship. It is a badge of of identity. It's intended to change how we are to see ourselves. And actually, that idea of identity is why I I do think it's worth laboring this citizenship idea. Because you see, we might read a phrase like verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, and find ourselves thinking, well, that's impossible. Because the gospel of Christ, the good news about Jesus, is that people aren't worthy, isn't it? It's that each of us have rejected God, have disobeyed him, have gone our own way, aren't fit for relationship with him, are not worthy. And the only way we could ever be worthy of him is if he were to make us so. If he were to extend grace, to forgive us. So is Paul now saying that somehow you're to make yourself worthy of him by how you live? to live a suitably radical life. Well, that isn't quite the idea, I think. Paul is calling followers of Jesus to something radical, but only because something radical has already happened to followers of Jesus. They've been given a new citizenship. They're citizens of heaven. And that changes how we come at this command in verse 27. Some of, some of you will know the story of King Edward VIII. He came to the throne of the United Kingdom in 1936. But he wanted to marry the American divorcee Wallace Simpson, in which at that time was a very difficult thing for him to do. So he abdicated the throne in order to marry her. And I read recently that in an interview given shortly before he died, Edward was remembering back to his childhood as the Prince of Wales. 
And he recounted an occasion when his dad, King George V, gave him into trouble for his behavior. And the young prince was a bit confused. He wasn't really sure why what he had done was worthy of a telling off. My dear boy, King George answered, you must always remember who you are. See, in Philippians 1, Paul isn't calling the Philippians to to, to prove that they're really worthy of the good news of Jesus. He isn't calling us this morning to prove that we're really up to it, that we measure up as Christians, if you're a Christian. Because the reality is that none of us are. The sense of what Paul is saying instead, I think, is, my dear Christians, you are citizens of heaven. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are his now. So you must always remember who you are. Live lives that reflect your citizenship. That's the big command, the imperative of Philippians 1. Remember who you are and let it shape how you live. Now that hopefully makes sense so far. But it does all beg the question, what's that actually going to look like? What does it look like to live as a citizen of the good news of Jesus? Well, that's our second point this morning. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel by striving side by side for the faith. Now, some of you will be aware that that right now we are smack bang in the middle of a Rugby World Cup. If you're, you're Scottish, you might be living in denial about that. Given the result of our first game, we were given an absolute hiding by South Africa. We do seem not to do so well when things actually matter. But one thing we do do pretty well, in Scottish rugby at least, is advertising. There was a campaign a few years ago, a campaign series actually, called Be Part of It. You might remember it, the the advert had the Scottish actor Brian Cox speaking over the sound of Highland Cathedral being played on the pipes, and he was saying these words, those who here toil in the sweat of their faces are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. It was pretty rousing stuff. For my money, though, one of the most effective campaigns was actually really not that complicated. It ran for several years, and it was simply called As one. And it was a particularly powerful campaign because those two words, as one, they were often superimposed at the end of the advert over an image of a Scottish scrum, where all of the players were quite literally pulling together as one. And uh, that's actually the title that I've given to this talk this morning, as one, because that is just what Paul wants the Philippians to be and to do. Just notice that with me. Look again if you have a Bible open at verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's using a dynamic image, not of a rugby scrum, perhaps maybe more of a Roman shield wall. One of you, you, you might have seen an image of that before. Soldiers' shields interlocked one next to the other, and the whole unit moving and working as one. And he's using that image to say, this is what it looks like to live as a gospel citizen. 
side by side, sharing one spirit of one mind as one, striving together to tell people the good news of Jesus. And I do think we need to be reminded of that as a culture more now than ever before. I remember speaking to a Christian a few years ago about their own experience of of, of church and their own church situation. They'd had a very difficult time with church and particularly with some people in their own church family. And they were really strongly, seriously considering moving on to somewhere else. And I asked where they were planning on, on, on going instead and they, they walked me through, blow by blow, the various other churches in the city in which they lived and explained the problems with each one and why they, they, they ultimately didn't feel they could really go. The conclusion they'd reached was that they, they, they couldn't think of anywhere they could go at all, any church family of which they could be a part. And that seemed to me to be a fairly desperate situation for a Christian to find themselves in. But this individual didn't seem all that put out. Uh, they said it was okay because they had access to good Christian literature, and uh, they they, they could tune into podcasts each week, and that COVID had actually made life easier, because they could watch whole services from home, broadcast from churches all around the world. See, it has never been easier to turn the Christian faith into a solo exercise than it is now. Not to strive side by side, but to function every man, woman, and child for themselves. Now, that might not be quite where you're at when it comes to church. At least some of you are here this morning, I guess. And I know there are lots of folks who would love to be here in person, but but can't. And for them, the live stream on YouTube is a really wonderful blessing. So please don't mishear what I'm saying. But I would nonetheless ask the question as to whether you're ever tempted to think similarly to that acquaintance of mine. That being with God's people is is, is an optional extra when it comes to the Christian faith. Perhaps even the price we have to pay for being a Christian. It'd be much, much easier just doing things by myself. Well, it is worth, worth being honest. Church can sometimes be difficult for quite a number of different reasons. And in fact, you might have recently arrived in this city for for study or for work and still be unsure about whether you're going to commit to a local church for just that reason. But to the kind of you that says, I can do this by myself, Paul would say, I think, really? Living a life worthy of your citizenship, life as a gospel citizen, It means living that life with other citizens, with partners in the gospel, striving together, as Paul was, to hold out the good news of Jesus to a world who needs to hear it, side by side, as one. Now, if you still aren't quite convinced by that idea, there is a really good reason given for us in Philippians 1. There are all sorts of different reasons, but there are, there's a particularly strong reason given for, uh, for, for doing all of that as one, shoulder to shoulder, in Philippians chapter 1. And we'll see that under our final heading. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, striving side by side for the faith, even when it's costly. Now, uh, one common experience of the Christian church since its very beginning 
has been persecution. In the first three centuries of the church, for example, particularly from emperors Nero to Diocletian, Roman persecutions of Christians were fierce. Through the 16th and 17th centuries, Bible-believing Christians were literally burned alive for refusing to renounce their faith in Jesus. But astonishingly, it's been the 20th and the 21st centuries that have seen the greatest increase in persecution of Christians. According to quite a number of estimates, more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last century than in every prior age combined. That is astonishing, isn't it? Astonishing because of the sheer numbers involved. But astonishingly, too, because that hasn't necessarily been our lived experience here in the West, has it? We've lived through a period of, of, of well, unique privilege for the Christian church in, in Scotland and in the UK over the past couple of hundred years, where the Christian faith has, has, has been embedded in mainstream culture. And yet, much of that embedding, well, it is starting to fray. Think of the uptick in employment tribunal hearings in recent years over the issue of religious discrimination, for example. Or the increased pressure on Christians in public life to explain the biblical worldview on on, on gender or on the value of human life. Pressure that wasn't there 10 or 20 years ago. Or just think of what I guess is more common experience for for lots of us now if we're Christians, the, 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 the derision. The surprise sometimes that comes from friends or colleagues or family members when we are the token Christian in that group. See, Christians in the West, and in Scotland in particular, I suspect will more and more find ourselves reverting to type in the years to come. And by type, I don't just mean the type we see borne out through church history, but the type we see borne out by Paul and the Philippians. I've already mentioned this morning that Paul was in chains for telling people about Jesus as he wrote this letter. And he wasn't the only one in the firing line. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's quite surprising language, isn't it? Perhaps even quite troubling language. It has been granted to you, says Paul, that you should suffer for Jesus' sake. The idea there, in case we're in two minds, is that the opposition that they are facing, it isn't an accident. That in one sense, It's been given to them by God. And I'm well aware that that might be a difficult thing for us to hear and to get our heads and hearts around. And if it's difficult for us, then think of the Christian in Iran facing extreme persecution for for sticking with Jesus. It's a shocking thing to be told that God has, has granted that to you, isn't it? But although it's shocking to hear In another sense, I wonder if you can also see that it's far better than the alternative where that persecution just happened and gets out of God's control. And actually, in one sense, Paul, I think, wants us to see that it's a reassuring thing. 
that the difficulty you face from friends or colleagues for being a Christian, it hasn't got God by surprise. And in fact, facing difficulty for following him might even be part of his purpose. That he might even use that difficulty to bring other people to know him. Paul does say that, doesn't he? He said it in last week's passage that even his chains were giving him the opportunity to speak to Roman prison guards about Jesus. And he takes that same idea and applies it to the Philippians in this morning's passage. Verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Contending for the faith of the gospel will bring difficulty, but, says Paul, God might even use that difficulty to evidence to other people, to show to other people that you're standing with him, that ultimately you you have a hope that extends far beyond someone taking your life in the here and now. The point does remain, though, living lives that are worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven, well, it will involve cost. Now, what does any of that mean for us? Because we we do need to be real with ourselves. Our situation isn't anything like as serious as Paul's was. We aren't being sent to prison for telling people that Jesus is king yet, are we? At least not yet. And yet the degree of suffering doesn't actually seem to be Paul's point in Philippians 1. I wonder if you noticed that. The Philippians themselves aren't in prison for telling people about Jesus, at least as far as we're aware. And yet Paul can still say, verse 30, that they are engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had, presumably when Paul was in Philippi sometime before, and now here that I still have. And that means that although, well, I guess the Philippians' experiences might have seemed a million miles away from the experience of Paul, our experience might well seem a million miles away from the experience of of Paul, and in many ways they are, of course, at least in degree, well, they aren't in type. The call to live as gospel citizens, telling other people about Jesus, even when it's costly, that lands squarely on our laps this morning too. Think of the new Christian explaining to their mates that they're a Christian now, and they aren't going to do the kinds of things they used to do before. Well, you think you're better than us now, do you? You Christians are all the same. You're a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. Or the Christian who's alone in their family as being the only one who follows Jesus and whose family day by day, week by week, chip away with belittling comments about their faith in Jesus. Maybe laugh them off when they try and have a serious conversation about matters of eternity. Now, it might well look and feel much more subtle here for the time being than it was for Paul in a prison cell in the first century. But it is the same principle. And it is just worth us asking, I think, if you are a Christian, whether, whether you've experienced that kind of hostility before at all. It's worth saying that not all pushback is necessarily an indicator that we're doing things right. As Christians, Christians can be hated simply for being obnoxious or, or entitled or, or a little bit annoying. But if you've never felt at least some friction for standing with Jesus, it might be worth asking yourself why that is. Do people know that you're a Christian? Do people in your office or your workplace know that that, that you're different? That you've got a different set of priorities, different allegiances? 
It can be easy to think of ourselves as the exception, can't it? That that, that through charm or warmth of personality, that we'll be the ones who manage to avoid stick. But you see, we're called to identify with Jesus if we're Christians, to strive to tell other people about him. And as we do, we will take flack. And that is why, isn't it, that this as one idea is oh so important. It's why, or at least it's part of why, if you are new to the city, or you aren't sure yet if you're going to commit to a local church, that I would plead with you, and I would use language as strongly as that, if you're a Christian, I would plead with you to do that. We'd love to have you at Hebron, but whether it's Hebron or another gospel church in the city, please do invest yourself in one. See, I mentioned earlier that the the Christian who had effectively decided to opt out of church altogether, and that raised all sorts of different questions or concerns with him taking that view. But at least one question is, what on earth are you going to do when the chips are down and you're facing difficulty for telling people about Jesus? Who are you going to turn to for help, for encouragement, for support? A podcast? A book? Really? See, we need each other. If we are really committed to telling other people about Jesus, if we think this is the most important news in the world, and we're going to press on with that task in 21st century Scotland and Aberdeen, we need each other. We need each other for the brief conversation after a Sunday morning service that turns into a coffee later in the week, where we check in with one another and how we're doing, And perhaps pray. Pray for each other to have opportunities to speak to our friends about Jesus. We need each other for the midweek Bible study where we think about how to be a faithful Christian at work. And we ask questions of each other that we would never think to ask ourselves. We need each other for the the, the, the team who serve in in a a toddler group or a youth night or in bowls and crafts or a a boxing outreach who are an encouragement to each other just by being there. Because you know what you're doing. You're striving together. Side by side. As one. Now, uh, perhaps you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian at all. And this might sound like a very, very poor sales pitch for the Christian faith. It's true if this was a sales pitch, you might expect me to try and downplay this side of things, I guess. And yet it's interesting that Jesus never did. He was always very, very clear about the cost of following him, wasn't he? He said that it would involve taking up a cross. He said it would involve people hating you as they hated him. So it's important that that, that I'm clear about that this morning because Jesus was. And yet at the same time, he was also clear that it is absolutely worth it. Paul made that clear in last week's passage, didn't he? Yes, I will rejoice, he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's almost indestructible there, isn't he? What can you do? against a man like that? What could give him that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of joy, even in the face of such difficulty? Well, the best news in the world. News of heavenly citizenship, of eternal life with the one who made you and knows you and loves you. And whilst he calls us to follow him, whatever the cost, 
He isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Because Jesus wasn't just subject to ridicule that we might face for speaking about him. Wasn't just imprisoned as Paul was, although that did happen too. No, he was tortured and humiliated and nailed to a cross by people who hated him. And he did all of that, all of that, so that you and I could one day be citizens of the gospel if we would trust in him. And if you've never thought about that before, or about what on earth would lead so many people to willingly and joyfully give their lives over to telling people that good news, well, can I just say, now would be a very, very good time to find out. Uh, please do speak to me after this morning's service or to the person who brought you if you'd like to know more. I would love to chat about that. Live lives worthy of the gospel, says Paul, despite the cost. How? Striving side by side, together, as one. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you for the good news of Jesus. That you would send your only son to suffer ignominy and torture and death and would do that to make it possible for people like us undeserving though we are unworthy though we are to become citizens of heaven it's just extraordinary father we pray that anyone here who's hearing that news for the first time or perhaps hearing it through new eyes this morning would come to embrace it for themselves And we ask that for those of us who have embraced it, would you please help us to tell other people that good news, even though it may well be very costly to do so. Knowing that we don't do that by ourselves as lone rangers, but side by side, as partners in the gospel, as one. We ask all of this in the name of the right and just King, Jesus Christ. And for his sake. Amen.